Success stories and interviews with game changers and thought leaders who have overcome both in life and in business. Welcome to Vertical Momentum. Welcome back to another episode of Vertical Momentum. I'm your host, Richard Kaufman, also known as The Comeback Coach. Guys, this is going to be another great episode. Um, as you know, this it, today is September 11th, and it's the 20-year anniversary of 9-11, so this is going to be a, a, re- a really um, heart-touching story with, with my friend, Mr. Michael Stephen Myers, Purple Heart recipient, um, another veteran that, that raised his hands for this great country. But first, I want to thank our sponsors. If you, Michael, when you were in the military, did you drink a lot of coffee? Uh, not really, but I do now. Uh, well, the, our sponsor, um, she's a female veteran, and she has a company called Soldier Girl Coffee. And she's sponsoring today's show. I drink it every day and I actually use it for iced coffee because I love my iced coffee. So if you guys love coffee, if you are interested in any CBD products also, she has CBD infused coffee. Check out soldiergirlcoffee.com. Michael, my brother, how are you? What's going on? Hey, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. Oh, man, it's, it's my pleasure. Like I said, it's 9-11. So um, we're, we're here with a heavy heart. Um, you know, 20 years after, and actually where I'm sitting right now, um, you can actually see where the Twin Towers once stood, a little bit more prominent. So talk to us a little bit about you. Um, Where did you grow up and what kind of boy was Mike? Speaking about the towers, I I remember standing underneath them once and looked looked, uh, directly up, and I'm telling you, a person cannot even realize how tall those things were. I, my son, my oldest son, Mike Jr., he uh, used to meet his stepdad there every morning at the Windows of the World restaurant. I guess my son at the time was uh, going to Princeton or something over in your part of town. And uh, they would meet every morning. His stepdad would ride his motorcycle in every morning, and they'd have breakfast in the Windows of the World, except that morning. He had to get his motorcycle worked on, so they canceled that morning's uh, breakfast. Fortunately, but uh, that was my association with 9/11, and of course we all we all felt the pain watching it go down. Of course. So, where did you grow up, and what kind of little boy was Michael? I uh, grew up. Uh, my father was a 31-year naval officer, so I uh, traveled quite a bit. Uh, lived in Japan and Germany, most of the world. Uh, but I uh, then I was an army officer, so I continued traveling. But I was born. My mother was from Norfolk, Virginia, and my father was from Long Beach, California. So I was always on one coast or the other. But I was born in Norfolk, and uh, did some of my early years in Norfolk, and some of my teen years or early teen years in Virginia Beach. And I have extended family here. So uh, again, if I may talk about nine eleven. Sure. This is I, uh, time, brother. I was with a lady for 22 years in California, and we had a home in Idaho. And I was still we. She she decided we she wanted to be in Idaho, be near closer close to her older mother, which uh, we did, and bought a house there. And then I was traveling back and forth to California because I was an actor and I was involved in a few plays that year. I was in three three plays. So we watched 9-11 together in horror like everybody else did, including the uh, jumpers, you know, the people jumping to their death. I mean, it was horrific. 
And then uh, I had to say goodbye and go be in a three plays the end of that year. Took my special dog with me, uh, Sport. He was a border collie, taught me every trick he knew. But took my special dog, and Sport got sick that Christmas, that December. Uh, cancer showed up and uh, took him to an experimental doctor program, and they ended up uh, killing him. So he went. So I lost my dog Christmas. And, of course, Patty, who was a lady I was with for 22 years, said she wouldn't realize until she saw me and, my, and sport wasn't at my side. So then I used to call Patty every day to see how she was doing and talk to her and so forth, you know. And so I called her one day and I couldn't get a hold of her, called her, the, which wasn't unheard of, called her the next day, couldn't get hold of her. Third day I called her mother and her mother said, are you sitting down? So my life changed completely. I was on the West Coast for probably 25 years. And so I had a bank, 9-11, my dog, and then Patty herself, even before I could get home, died. So I uh, packed up and came back out east here. So I've been at the oceanfront of Virginia Beach since 2002, if that okay. answers your question. <laughs> yeah, so now you said your, your father was a, a Navy man? Yeah, he was a naval officer for... He was in the Navy for 31 years. His mother lied for him to sign for him, lied for him to get into the Navy when he was 14 years old so he wouldn't miss the war. He loved the sea. And my uh, grandmother, Flo Kelly Myers, strong woman, lost her husband during the Depression, uh, was a published poet. She wrote a poet uh, poem about her, her boy, Russ, the blonde-haired lad and his love for the sea. So he was. He ended up at Iwo Jima, Leyte Gulf, and Okinawa on a ship in those different battles. So, what was your father's response when you decided to join the army? Yeah, <laughs> good question. <laughs> what was your What was your thought process joining the army? Well, like I said, you know, we traveled most of the world, but back then we traveled by ship, especially if you're in the navy. So we went. Well, I went across both oceans twice, Pacific and Atlantic. And I got sick as a dog. I would last about two and a half days. And then I'd get sick as a dog. And I was just sick for most of the trip. So I knew I didn't want to be on the sea. So my, uh, I came home. I, I was a ball player. My girlfriend, another American girl in Japan at the American High School, uh, was a cheerleader. And uh, actually the captain of cheerleaders, a real pretty girl. And she got pregnant. So I was 17 years old. And I decided... I wanted to be a father to my child. So I sat down with my mother and I, I said, Mom, I, I got to talk to you. And she's she, uh, mother's intuition, I guess. She said, she's pregnant. And she, I said, yeah, she's pregnant. So my dad sat down with me and laid out for how if I really worked hard, in nine years, I could be a chief in the Navy. And I thought to myself, nine years to be a chief? And uh, also, I didn't mention I got seasick as a dog. So they, they signed for me to get married. So I got married one day and joined the Army the next. Then okay. I, go ahead. You know, I love um, everybody's recruiting story. So, you know, what was your recruiting story? Going into the recruiter's office and the minute you told him that your father was, an, was a Navy man, what was, what was that whole uh, conversation like? You know, I was so young and things were happening so fast back then. I think they were just glad to have me. And Vietnam hadn't hadn't really, you know, started happening yet. That was 65. 
So uh, I think they were just happy to get a new soldier, and they knew that my father was a naval officer, so they figured they were going to get a good one, you know, military family, raised military. I was just doing my part. I did, uh, the only thing I do remember is that m my dad did help me uh, in becoming an officer. They, uh, they thought that was uh, pretty good. And I remember my father visited us at Fort Benning, Georgia, on my uh, graduation to senior candidate. And he was the only one in the, in the, the section of bleachers in his uniform. He said he never saluted so much in his life as he did that day. Everybody be running by and stop and say good morning, sir. And he, my mother got a kick out of it. But I got I got uh, chewed out after he, after the ceremony because they said you didn't tell us your father was a VIP. I said well, I didn't know he was a VIP. He's just my dad, you know. But he was in his naval whites and he looked great. And so they he, they had a whole bleacher section to himself during the parade. It was fantastic. But the only time. My father and I ever really saluted each other was after the war. I came back, the, the, actually, I came back as first lieutenant, and he invited me to his ship with my little family. He was on a ship in Norfolk here, his last ship, uh, for Thanksgiving. And he happened to be OOD, the officer on deck. And uh, when I came on board, he saluted me, he said, welcome aboard, sir, and I saluted him back. And then saluted the flag like a good naval officer would do. And, and it was really, uh, he got a kick out of that, I know, because he insisted I wear my uniform. And I think that's probably why he wanted to do that. So it was a very proudful moment for both of us, I think. Now, when you went in, did you go for a ranger or did you do, did you do jump school and all that? Well, when I first went in, I was enlisted. So I, I was about three years enlisted. I think it was at like 20 months I was in E5. It became a sorry. I was a pretty sharp soldier. And I was up, uh, I was in actually Nike Hercules uh, missile, uh, missiles up in Alaska. And I could see uh, what's called Mount Denali or something like that now. It used to be Mount McKinley from, from the battery I worked at. And from there, I was selected for OCS, uh, Officer Candidate School at Fort Benning, Georgia. And I knew I wanted to be infantry. I knew I, knew I wanted to go all the, through all the training that I could go through. So I became a, I went through ranger training. I didn't become a ranger, but I went through a, a series of ranger training with leadership and night patrolling. And then I went through uh, jungle training in Panama with the Special Forces School and became a jungle expert. So I was ranger trained and jungle trained before I joined my rifle platoon during Tet 68. I helicoptered in and dropped into a hot, uh, hot battle going on. All right. So um, let me ask you, because like I've talked to I've had many um Navy SEALs, Rangers, Delta Force guys. And we, and the main thing that they talk about making it through selection process was the never quit um, one more push up, you know, one more set, one more rep. That's what, you know, not quitting. So yeah. what made you not want to, what, as they see, say, um, ring the bell and quit? I'm sure you've seen a lot of people quit during some of the selection process. Oh, yeah. What yeah. made you become, somebody that's stuck well i knew that uh i knew that i and i was always uh when i was younger i was always a leader of a group you know i was a wrestler and ball player and runner and i, I always wanted to be on top you know i was aggressive and hungry and when i when i got into the service i wanted to be the best i didn't just want to be an infantryman or a rifleman i wanted to be one of the best and the government trained me quite extensively 
You know, I was, uh, I was, I was the epitome of the American soldier. When I went to war, I fought that war like any American before had. And when I came home, uh, things were different. Things were different for us. I don't know what your age is. I don't know if you're a, a Vietnam era, a Vietnam veteran, or I was born '59. So when you got out, I was just born. But now, when you, because I had um, some friends that were in the Vietnam, and mm-hmm. uh, they were in infantry. And the life expectancy of an infantry officer in Vietnam was like 15, 20 seconds. 10 was- seconds under fire. Yeah, we heard that all the time. 10 seconds. As a matter of fact, I just had breakfast on June 6th, D-Day of all days. We didn't we didn't plan that, but it just occurred with Joseph L. Galloway, who wrote We Were Soldiers Once and Young, and his wife Grace and his little therapy dog in Norfolk. And uh, one of the things we were talking about uh gracie his wife said you were a lieutenant and i said yeah and she said and you're alive so it was remarkable that the life expectancy we were told that all the time but you had to go through that i mean i went through i said yeah yeah i could die i could die but that's what my country wants of me that's what i want you know and uh so i was ready even uh to the point where i had a young family and the uh, couldn't find any insurance, life insurance, because they all had war clauses. And then I found uh, Prudential. Prudential uh, waived the war clause, and I went to war in 1968 with a million dollars of life insurance, which was unheard of in those days. But yeah, it was. Uh, so it was really, uh, really an experience. I'm telling you. So you went from being an E5, which is a non-commissioned officer, to yeah. being officer. So you had, you know, because you had the best of both worlds. So talk to us what it's like going from, you know, being an E4, because I was an E4, and I went to E5, and I took the NCO creed very, very seriously. So talk to us about how you become a leader of men. It was a great advantage because a lot of the guys in the war that, that, and and fortunately, I, I wish I'd done a lot better job because I didn't keep all of them alive, you know, but I... Um, and I was only 21 and 22, but the guys, some of the guys would call me LT, which I always adhered to, you know, I always thought that was, it made me feel like I was one of the guys, you know, cause I'd been enlisted three years. So I, maybe I related to them a little differently, but I, I felt like I was one of the guys. Some of them called me Lieutenant, some called me sir, but when they called me LT, I thought, you know, that's cool. That, that, that means they recognize me for who I am, you know? that uh, I felt more like their older brother rather than their uh, officer, you know, their platoon leader. But, uh, and then the sergeants, of course, my, my platoon sergeant was the first man I saw killed. He was 37 during Tet 68. So it was, uh, but most of the guys were younger, 17, 18, died heroic deaths on mountaintops, you know, and a piece of me died on those uh, mountaintops along with them, you know. Now, you also, um, I hate to say the word, earned a Purple Heart, but you are a recipient. recipient. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about what happened and and then what happened afterwards? Well, you know, the uh, I was actually wounded more than once, but um, that once was bad enough to uh, be medevaced out. And it was a place called LZ Center, and it was 1968, I believe it was. Yeah, May 68. And I lost uh, two. I lost two 
two people there, including my platoon sergeant, first major battle I was in. And I remember I joined my platoon under fire. Uh, I dropped out of a chopper and I had so much gear on landing on my back, knocked the wind out of me. And there was all kinds of green traces and red traces and explosions and scared the hell out of me. And uh, somebody was shooting at me. Somebody I could feel the rounds going over me and hitting the dirt around me. And then uh, my platoon sergeant dragged me out down into a hole. And that's how I met him. And that was before LZ Center. Now, LZ Center came up later. And during LZ Center, I don't know if you saw the I imagine most people saw the movie Forrest Gump. Yeah. There's a scene in Forrest Gump where uh, Lieutenant Dan, who I met later, uh, was uh, laying on his back, I believe it was, and there was there was fire coming out of the tree line. And most people that aren't trained in service don't realize that what they see is every fifth or sixth round, the tracer. Yep. So, But you hear the other one. So I'm hearing all this zing, 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 ping, 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 and my RTO's right next to me, and I'm laying on my back behind a rice paddy dike and I uh, or a hill. I don't remember what it was because it was on a mountain, so it probably wasn't a rice paddy dike, but it was a little embankment. I'm laying behind it, trying to call in supporting fire, and I felt a zing, and I felt a thump in my wrist. And uh, I'm still trying to talk on the radio, and Martillo's going, uh, sir, sir. And I look, and I see the blood pumping out of my wrist, and it's like, pump, pump, and I'm going, oh, geez. And I got dizzy and, you know, got patched up and stuff. So I don't know what happened other than that, other than at that point. I knew I had to pull us back and get out of there because we were getting overrun. And uh, my my platoon sergeant, before I got hit, my platoon sergeant was in front of me. I was walking right behind him, and he was walking where I would normally be, the lieutenant would normally be, and he'd normally be in the rear, bringing up the rear. And I would they would have like a point man and then maybe one other rifleman and then the lieutenant and then the RTO. And the enemy, this life expectancy you were talking about, they'd look for the guy with the radio and they'd shoot the guy in front of him. So when we got ambushed, when we started our patrol on this mountain to move these people off this mountaintop, they uh, opened up, ambushed us, and I was right behind Sergeant Ferguson. I'm, I said his name, I'm sorry. Sergeant First Class Leroy Ferguson, airborne great soldier. He uh, took about five or seven rounds, and I heard it go thump, 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 and I heard his uh, life leaving his body for the last time and when he fell it was like a great tree falling and that's when I fell into this uh, I remember now it was a, a bomb crater with a little berm around it and that's when I took one and we're pulling back I'm trying to pull back everybody back at the same time we're trying to get the Ferguson and uh, I looked at my one of my right machine gunners and I said pull back pull back we're, you know we're getting overrun I mean there was voices Vietnamese voices all around us I remember I popped up and shot and saw a pith helmet go flying so I knew he hit somebody but we were trying to pull back and he said well I'll you pull him back sir you get back I'll hold him off you get the wounded back I'll hold him off and I'm wounded and I got my medic with me and I looked at my medic and I said do I have to go in he said yeah you should go in sir so I got on the very last dust off chopper and the dust off choppers were so heavy from so much wounded and so much blood on the deck that it was they were having trouble lifting off. And I remember as we were getting ready to lift off, there was a couple NBA soldiers coming up towards the chopper, shooting at the chopper, and one of my sergeants cut them down. And I'm sitting in the chopper by this time, and here comes the guys carrying one more poncho, a body and a poncho. And they're hauling this guy up, and they put him up on the deck, and it's 
it's the machine gunner that I left behind that wanted to stay behind and hold the gunners up. His name was Harris. So he's laying in the chopper and I'm sitting there with him in the chopper and my medic's still, the medic on the chopper saying, it's okay, it's just a little hole. But what we didn't realize, it was a little hole in his neck, but it cut his car corroded artery. So he was bleeding to death inside. So I'm holding his hand and telling him, you're going to be all right, you're going home, you're going home. And he said, he just did that shock thing, you know, went in the shock, said, said, mama, mama, and just and died on me, you know, so... That was my, uh, that one I got the, I received the Purple Heart for. And I met Mike Horton, the Navy SEAL here in Norfolk, and I introduced him to one of my friends. And I said, this is Mike Horton. He's, he's a winner of the Medal of Honor. And Mike took my lips. He'd been drinking a little bit and took my lips and said, recipient, recipient. You don't win the Medal of Honor. Just like the Purple Heart. It's not something you win or it's something you, uh, you receive, you know. Yep. Now, so how long after that did you stay in the military, and what was your decision to get out of the military? Yeah, good, good question. Um, I uh, the day I was due to make captain at Fort Benning, Georgia. Uh, you know, one of the most honorable things I ever did was to lead American soldiers in combat. Was, nobody could touch that. But the second most honorable thing I did when I came back to Fort Benning was to uh, be OIC a funeral detail. So we were burying three or five a week, you know? And then, and now with my writing, I find I'm able to help other veterans find their way back home, which I mean to themselves, but to find their psyche again, what they were missing. So what was your question again? So, you know, a lot, a lot of people, when they decide to get out of the military, it's for other they mm-hmm. do yeah, I know where I know where I was going. You know, they wanted to they're yeah. sick and tired of seeing death. Yeah. What was your um that come to Jesus moment where you're like, All right, I'm done, I've had it. It's yeah, because that's a good question, because I was a career officer. I was I was gun hole, career sharp. That people have told me I'd probably with my uh war record and so forth, I'd probably have retired a general, you know, but I remember the battalion commander and the company commander had me in there, his uh, battalion commander's office, and on the desk was sitting some captain bars. I had completed my obligation, and the choice had to be made. By this time, I had a young family. If I took those bars and became captain, I would have gone back to Vietnam as a company commander. I had already lost enough men. On When I go to the wall, or when I look at the wall, think of the wall, I, there's six or 12 names there that I knew, men that were in my command, or that I associated with friends, like another lieutenant, but and a forward, forward uh, observer captain. So I knew these men, and I'd lost enough. And if I went, and that was with 40 men, and if I went back, I'd have 200 men. And I didn't feel like I did a good enough job keeping people alive. And that's what we were fighting for and dying for was just trying to keep each other alive. It wasn't political. It was just soldiers. We were soldiering. So I looked at those bars and I looked at them and I had the choice. And I said, no, I think I'm done. They had a young family to worry about. And my young family, I surely would have got myself killed. I almost got myself killed just with a rifle platoon. I knew I'd get myself killed with a company. So I uh, gave up my career. I regretted it for years, but I walked away from it. And, you know, 
you know yourself, once you get that soldier or Marine in you, you're always that. It never leaves you, you know? Now, you know, like I said, I've interviewed now. I have like 350 interviews. And it seems, you know, we're all, you know, hardcore, whoa, whatever you call it. But, you know, when you're in the military, we get used to getting paid. Well, I don't know what it was back then. But now you get paid on the 1st and the 15th. You know, you have your TRICARE. You have your medical insurance. You have all that. And like my friend Nick, my Sergeant Nick said, you know, once you step off base, the military does not give a shit about you. Your yeah. phone stops ringing and all of a sudden you don't have a job and you also don't have a mission and you don't have your friends to talk to anymore because, you know, out of sight, out of mind. So what yeah. was your transitioning like? And I know at that time, um, Vietnam veterans were not treated very nicely. So can you go into that a little bit? Because a lot of people don't know about that. Yeah, absolutely. I have a, a little prose that I wrote about my own coming home. You still got me, right? Yep. Read you, Lima Charlie. Okay. Uh, I got my own little prose that I wrote about my personal and true coming home. And I'm going to share that with you right now. Let me just get that up in front of me. Here it comes. Coming home. How I do remember coming home from Vietnam. I remember that day very clearly. Yes, how I remember that day. I wondered how I was ever going to stand next to my family again. To be the young man that I was when I left. Could I ever be that young man again? How I would answer those questions that I knew would be coming. Could I? I, I really didn't know, but I knew they would be coming. Whenever one of the men would finish his tour of duty and be leaving the field, I would hear others warning him not to wear his uniform and to keep a low profile, to hide. I thought to myself, why? Wasn't this America? I remember that day, that day I came home. It was during a layover in San Francisco that I took a taxi across the Golden Gate to Sausalito. I remember everything was moving so fast so very fast. Everyone seemed to be in some sort of a tremendous hurry, but to where? They were just living their lives. I wanted to find a lounge near the calm waters of the bay. I wanted to unwind to allow my mind to realize that it was all over, that I was safe, that I was home. I had worn my uniform because I was proud of it and of the work my men and I had done for our country. I was alone now. I'd left them out there on those hot and bloody fields of battle just the day before. I stood tall with all the honorable stature that I could possibly muster. I was a proud Virginian. I was a patriot, you see. I had done my duty as all of the people before me had done theirs. I tried my best to serve as bravely as that plume-hatted great-grandfather who, along with 12,000 other brave Virginians, charged up that hill on Gettysburg or my naval officer father who was at Iwo Leite Golf in Okinawa, or my uncle who flew B-17s over Europe and jets in Korea, or that handsome uncle who was at Normandy. How gallant they all were. I walked into that lounge with that decorated officer's uniform looking as sharp as any American soldier, sailor, airman, or marine ever could have coming home from a war. 
I wanted to be recognized for what I had done, for what I had been through. I wanted to be thanked. I wanted to be alive again. People were there in that lounge, happy people. They were drinking and talking and laughing. They were laughing. They were just living their lives. I was just another young man like the many they had seen before, just another soldier returning home from that unpopular war. Well, they were busy, you see. They were just too busy. I sat alone, my legs stretched out so my feet were resting on the coffee table in front of me. I sat there quietly for a while, sipping a red wine, watching the sailboats as they ever so gently floated by. I wanted to let go of the terrible visions in my head. I wanted to let go of the screams. I wanted to let go of the death of the dying. I wanted to let go of the guilt of living. I wanted to let go of my troubled mind. I wanted to let go of me. I remember that day. That day I came home. As I proudly sat there in my glorious uniform waiting for someone, anyone, as I sat there watching those peaceful little boats and listening, listening to the laughter of those fine American people, I slowly began to realize something, something that I would never forget. I realized that not one of them, not a single one of them even cared. They didn't even care. They just did not care. That was my coming home. Wow. That's very, um, it just, it's like an amazing, you know, I could just see it in my mind. When I got off, yeah, and when I got off the plane there before I made that trip across the Golden Gate, there was demonstrators. I have a picture of it. And they were holding placards and signs that said murderer and baby killer. And it was horrible. So I, so as a result, I went up to Northern California and uh, took my dogs. And I was what they referred to as one of those lost veterans. My dad always said uh, officers handle their own problems. But I took my dogs and up in the, blue, the mountains of Blue Lake, California, old logging trail roads. I lived with my dogs for a year in a trailer by myself. And whenever I went down into town, which I had to do to get things, you know, I was uh, always scared to death because I was afraid somebody would actually try and talk to me or ask me a question. And I'd had, I'd, I didn't want anything to do with my society for many years. Ten, I call it my 10-year post-Vietnam drift. And then finally... A good friend of mine, Senator Max Cleland, who was the head of the VA at the time, he started the Vietnam Veteran Outreach Centers. We still have these veteran outreach centers, but these were called the Vietnam Veteran Outreach Centers at the time in Eureka, California. So I came down off the mountain and um, sat on, on a group. Now, there was that disassociation, you know, because I was an officer and a lot of the guys were enlisted. So there's that separation anyway. So I listened. I, I didn't do much talking. I just listened. And I heard a lot of the stories that were similar to mine. And after the uh, group, Jack Jones was his name, pulled me into his office and said, let me ask you a few questions. I said, okay. He said, are you having problems with relationships? 
I said, yeah, I mean, I'd been divorced. I was going through women like crazy, you know, in my life and uh, after the war. And then uh, he said, how about are you having trouble with stick-to-itiveness, having trouble keeping a job? And, yeah, I was going from job to job. Nothing was satisfying me, you know. And uh, he said, well, what about society? Are you having trouble? Are you, if, do you like people, civilians? And I said, no. And he said, well, he said, well, look in here. And we looked at a stand-up mirror, and full-length mirror, and he said, look in the mirror. He said, what do you see? I said, I, I see me, of course. And he said, well, maybe you're the problem. And that's the first time that I realized that it's okay for people to be who they are, you know? It's okay for them not to recognize. But it gives me bittersweet emotions now. I, I'm proud of our soldiers and sailors. I always tell them, our Marines, I tell them, carry that flag high, you know, and hopefully we've learned a lesson. But it's bittersweet because we didn't get anything, you know? We got, we got shit on. I mean, it was like they teach at, they took me, they took this young man at 17 and they made me, and I was a strack soldier, man. I was sharp. I mean, sharp enough to be off OIC a funeral detail to lead our troops in combat. And, but they never, and so they train you, train you, jungle training, Panama, ranger training, you know, everything. But they never taught you how to not be that anymore. Just like all of a sudden you just whistle blows. It's all over. Goodbye. And people want to tell you, well, forget about it. It was a mistake. It's over. And you're going, oh, yeah, all right. Yeah, right. Get away from me. You know, get away from me. Those are real people. Yep. You know, and I believe, you know, that they train you to go to war, but they don't train you to come home. That's right. You know, That's and right. I had a conversation with uh, General Petraeus and we were talking about maybe, you know, how like when we're about to go to war or about to be deployed somewhere. We go on a three month train up. They need to do a three month train down. So yep, maybe they need to do a cool down. Yep. Maybe that'll help get that suicide number. Yeah. number instead down. of cutting, yeah. Instead of cutting them loose. I mean, we have, we have thousands and thousands of homeless veterans. If you're a veteran and you were on the line for your country, a combat veteran specifically, especially a purple heart recipients out there. You should never want for anything. Shouldn't be homeless. Shouldn't, shouldn't want for medicine or food or a shelter or transportation. You should never want for anything, anything ever. Our, our society got mixed up. I remember when they brought the uh, the uh, Vietnamese refugees home, which I'm wonderful, I'm glad. But when they brought them home to America, they were fishermen. So the government, I, I think it was down in a place called Port Lucas, Texas, or somewhere down in Texas, they gave these Vietnamese fishermen a fishing boat and fifty thousand dollars back then to get to get rolling to keep keep their lifestyle going. They never gave us anything, nothing. But let me tell you this about PTSD because I suffer from PTSD, which is natural, of course. PTSD and wounds. So I so I'm one of those veterans. So I try and remind our guys because suicide. You were talking about suicide. I wrote a play called. A soldier's final act about the 22 suicides a day a couple of years ago, 22 a day. And so I wrote this play about a, a suicide veteran. But PTSD is what I was talking about. PTSD is when you cut yourself, when you get a bad cut or wounded in war, what do you have that shows that you were you experienced that? You have a scar. 
I have a scar all the way down my wrist from where the surgery and, and a hole on the other side. Not not bad, but there. It's a reminder. It's something I'm live, going to live with the rest of my life. When I look at it, and I look at it with pride. So PTSD is the same thing. It's an emotional scarring. It's an emo you know, one bad plane crash, see a murder, somebody, you know, you can have one, but you take a combat veteran, for, for instance, in Vietnam, a Vietnam combat veteran, you have that multiple, multiple times. In my case, 12, 20, you know, constant. And that's not counting the other people that you killed. That's just counting the people that you saw die. You know, the World War II vet, the combat infantry soldier, in four years, these are the true statistics, saw an average of about 44 days of actual fighting combat. Granted, they had some tremendous battles, some tremendous wars, the Pacific, you know, uh, the different battles they had were tremendous. But the average infantryman in World War II, the war we won, the parades, the heroes, the kissing, all that stuff, 44 days. You take a young Vietnamese, a young Vietnam American soldier, infantry soldier, in one year, over 200 days of actual fighting combat. So it's a bloody, bloody mess. And then you cut them loose and you got this PTSD. But if I can get the guys, because I was for that 10 year drift I was in, I didn't know what was missing. I, I hated people. There was something missing in me. And I discovered many years later, 80, mid 80s that it was my youth. I lost my kid. You know, I, I didn't have a kid anymore. I was trained into this thing and I became this thing and I did it proficiently and wonderfully and proudly. And then I came home and it was like, okay, see you later. So I had to, you had to learn to live with this scarring, this PTSD. It does. It's not an excuse for going crazy or being stupid or killing yourself. It's something that it's, you should hold your head up in pride. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a badge of honor. It's something that you did that most people don't get to do in their lifetime. You did it for your country. You did it for mankind. And, it's, and for, for me, I walked around with my head down for 10 years. But I'm, if I can just get people to remember the pride, you know, remember that. Forget about what people say or what they don't say. Remember what you did, you know, and how proud that is. And, and, and where that PTSD as a badge of honor, you know, it's never going to go away. You can't fix it. You, yep. can't fix a, you can't fix a scar, right? You got to live with it. Now, you know, um, did writing, was writing very cathartic for you? Did that help you with, with your struggling with post-traumatic stress? Yes, absolutely. I had a psychiatrist, VA psychiatrist said, you're different than any other Vietnam veteran I've talked to. He said, most of them run from it and hide from it. Somehow you've turned and embraced it. And uh, another one, and then another one said, uh, the reason you exercise so much is to maintain battle readiness. And then a third one said, the reason you act so much is to get away from yourself. So I learned, and one, and one suggested that I write. I'd write everything down. So one day I sat in front of my house with six steno pads, and I just filled them. It was almost immediate. I just filled them up. And then I realized afterwards, and I'd probably just scratched the surface. You know, just no depth, just scratched the surface. No format, just got it like regurgitating. So when Patty died and I was away acting, I never acted again. And that's when I packed up my gear and my last remaining dog and my, 
and drove across country to Virginia. And then I started writing uh, more. I started taking the writing that I'd done before because I, I, I forgot to mention I was part of HBO's Vietnam War stories in the 80s. And I even had a little input with Tales from the Crip back then. So I did some writing and I had a column and I did uh, different different things. I did a TV show, but uh, and I did a lot of acting and commercials. And so I had to drop everything. I could never act that again after Patty died. Came back to Virginia. Didn't know what I was going to do for a while. And then I started writing and I put a play together and I call it Badges of Honor. I mentioned just a couple minutes ago about Badges of Honor, not about medals. It's about dreams. It's about events. It's honorable, dignified things that that we can't forget. If if we acted, if we behaved in any manner other than a dignified manner, we would be disgracing the people that we left behind that died in a very dignified manner. You know, so we need to remember that connection that we have, that honor. And I hope that I can die with as much dignity and honor someday. I, I doubt if I could compared to what they did, but but it, it, I forgot where I was going with that again. Now, darn it! Well, like I said, we you know we're just talking about if writing became oh yeah catharsis, cathartic, so I, yeah, became your, your yeah. way of you know letting things out, right? Yeah, so I wrote this one play called it Badges of Honor. Invited a hundred people, a hundred friends, and uh, people that I knew and family. And ran this three-act play with a hotel, that dinner dinner theater with me. And uh, it went really well. Had a lot of reception. So I broke it down into three one-act plays. One of them called A Healing of War. Post-healing plays and stories. I used a lot of my own stories and ghosts and, and told my stories in different forms, to honoring different people that I knew, like my platoon sergeant, a father's legacy, a healing of war. And I entered a healing of war into a play festival just by chance. And I won the play festival. I couldn't believe it. I won the best play, best audience choice play, won six awards. And I realized that what I was saying, people were interested in hearing. And it was healing. It was helping people. So I was helping veterans and their families. So then I that play was featured in Silver Spring, Maryland, Virginia, uh, down in Texas, at the Will Rogers Auditorium, they had the Collegiate Actress of the Year playing the daughter. And when I was in Maryland, a, a female uh, director and uh, another group uh, put put it on. And they invited me. I was in the audience, and they introduced me. And a young Iraq Marine vet, uh, he may have still been a Marine, but he came up to me and said, you were there, weren't you? And I said, and he said, yeah, I could tell you by the words you were using, the things you were saying. And he shook my hand. He said, thank you. And I, and I thought, wow, you know. That's helping them, too. It's helping the young guys, too. And I had a guy, I lived in that area in the Redwoods uh, about the time when I came then off the mountain. And then I lived there again in 2000. Remember uh, when, uh, 2001, when Patty died in 9-11. But I lived there at that second time. And I had a gathering of actors and veteran friends of mine. And one guy cornered me in the kitchen. He said, Michael, he said, I want to tell you something. I, I said, what's that? And he said, 10 years ago, you said something to me that changed my life. And I said, really? What, what was that? He said, well, I don't want to go there like a, any good veteran. And he says, but I just wanted you to know that you changed my life. So I knew my writing could help people. I knew it could help other veterans. You know, not to get off the subject, but speaking about, you said, you know, SEALs and so forth. 
I knew the Ranger Detachment in Vietnam 68, 69. I knew the Special Forces up around Hathon because I was part of the Task Force Galloway. But I knew them, and there was maybe 5,000 of them. And during my days when I first came back and I'm visiting a lot of bars, I bet you I met 100,000 of them. Every, it's very hard to meet anybody that's a proud sailor, a proud soldier, a proud Marine. They're all snipers, recon, special ops, SEALs. Nobody just, everybody wants to be somebody else. You know, I don't get it. That's why I really enjoyed the book by Burkett, Stolen Valor. Yep. I love that book. And I've actually talked to him. And uh, I think he does some amazing work. Yeah. So now, you know, now we're, like you said, it's 9 11. Um, this is when I'm releasing the episode because I prom- that's something that I figured this would be very, um, helping to somebody that might be struggling out there now you know a lot of people know how many people we lost and the, the twin towers but a lot of times we forget the, the veterans and the soldiers that we lost at the right. so talk to us about you know um, because a lot of people that were there yeah uh, richard can you excuse me for just two minutes sure okay can you put it on pause i'll be right back all right necessities be right back all right guys so he's going to be taking a break um for a second and of course this is live so we're going to keep rolling but um you know as i was saying you know um 9 11 september 11th changed my life um, i was due to be thrown out of the military for a second time on um the end of September of 2001. And as I was watching this all unfurl, uh, watching on TV, like everybody else at this time, I was in South Carolina in the South Carolina national guard. Um, I watched it on TV and being from New Jersey, um, we all knew people who were in the towers that day and didn't come home. And it really destroyed me. Um, And I became a broken man. And I actually crumbled into my couch and cried out to the Lord, Lord, give me another chance. I want to dedicate my life to helping people that couldn't help themselves, like those people in the Pentagon, in Shanksville, and in the Twin Towers. And that day I was reborn. Um, I was not the same person that I was when I went to bed on September 11th that I was when I woke up. And if you, you know, if you guys were listening to this when this first started, um, where I'm sitting at this moment, um, I can actually see where the Twin Towers once stood. And at nighttime, you can see the lights um, where the Twin Towers once stood, and they go hundreds of feet in the air. Um, So, Sorry about that, Richard. I'm back. No, like I said, you know, we nobody a lot of people don't remember that there were soldiers, sailors and veterans and agents that got killed on 9/11. Yeah. So I just want, you know, see what your thoughts on th- I wrote I wrote one called Billy and the One-Armed Bandit for Tales from the Crypt and in the 80s and I still owned it, so I rewrote it after the 9/11 because we all watched in horror these towers fall. But before that, we watched in horror as these people had to make these split decision, split moment decisions about their life, their life and death. Did they want to burn to death 
or did they want to jump towards the air? A natural tendency for the human is to get away from the danger. So they're hanging on the window. Some of them slip and fall. Some of them jump. We all watched this, but we nobody knew who they were specifically, personally. Some Some people, of course, did, but personally, most of us didn't. So in my rewrite of Billy and the One-Armed Bandit, I included three jumpers. I introduced you to three of those jumpers and the horror they go through and the decision they make. And and so I introduced people to that. And then, like with the uh, suicide rates of the Vietnam veterans in my play, A Soldier's Final Act, which was originally A Soldier's Final Act of Kindness, and then it became A Soldier's Final Act of Redemption, and then I shortened to A Soldier's Final Act, because we all know about the suicides of veterans, but not many of us know who they were. So in this particular play or script, could be a screenplay, I guess, I uh, introduced the whole first act is a one-man play, one-man act, uh, and it's about one of these veterans that makes a decision to take his life. So it's so I, so I introduced people to that too. So through that, through that writing, I'm hoping that it'll get out there, and I'm hoping that people will see that there's a better way you know, to live with that scar, you know, but I think this one is going to be the most, the, the last two I worked on was the soldier's final act and the archagalos. And I think they're both going to be of great benefit to our soldiers, veterans, sailors, Marines, families, people that have lost the 13 brave souls that we just lost helping somebody. So, you know, I, I just think that these, these writings of mine, and you can find them on my webpage, uh, at least, uh, you know, excerpts and stuff like that but you can get a synopsis of it anyway so yep and i'll be posting them in the uh, liner notes so oh, great two questions great. is um how do we find you how can we get in touch with you and how can we support your mission well i have my uh web page which also includes my email uh and i don't know if you want to uh, should we verbalize that? It's www. Michael Stephen Myers. It's spelled S T E P H E N M Y E R S dot com. There you'll find updates on my plays. You'll have a PayPal thing there, or you'll have my email. It's all on the web page. And have uh, you know if you if if there's an outlet of somebody's interested in helping us get the word out because I've been sitting sitting pretty still with COVID. You know, as we all have. I mean, you can you can have the creative uh, creative input, but if you don't have anybody that's available to watch it, now we got this new influx of uh, COVID. So yeah, I'm just hoping that we get that behind us and we get back to some sort of normalcy. And I and I don't sound my uh, mean to sound cliche-ish, but um, normal. So a lot of people say get their life back to normal. Well, we have to remember there's close to a million people that'll never get back to normal. They, you know, they've lost their lives and we got on a whole new batch. So I'm, I'm, I'm good. You know, I'm good with that. But uh, I think my webpage is going to give them the links they need. Please write me. Anybody can write me on my email and there's a PayPal thing there. If you feel generous and you want to help us get this uh, thing produced, I'd love to get it produced uh, probably locally because in this area we have the most, uh, veterans i think in the country here in here in in charleston uh navy army air force so okay so last question is i ask everybody this and i i love it because i ask a thousand people and i get a thousand different answers (laughs) you just alluded to you know we live in a crazy covid world 
Um, in New Jersey here, we have a lot of people that have um, lost their jobs. We have grandparents homeschooling kids. We got parents that lost their jobs just driving Uber or DoorDash to put food on the kid's, ta- in the kid's mouth. So if I ask the average American to do something in seven days, they're never going to get to it. But if I ask somebody to take an actionable step in the next 24 hours, they're more likely to do it. So if there's somebody listening to this right now that is struggling with post-traumatic stress, um, what is something they can do in the next 24 hours to start to get some help? Well, I would go to, I would definitely, if they're a veteran, PTSD veteran, I would definitely look towards your veteran outreach centers, your counseling centers. They're out there. They just have to be aggressive about finding one. VA usually has the links to them. You can usually find them online, via veteran outreach centers. So I would definitely reach out and talk about it. I do. I What I try and do is I try and help. I don't judge people. You know, if I see a homeless person, for instance, I don't judge them. I help them. You know, it's not about who they are. It's about who I am. You know, so... Well, you know what, brother? I'm so appreciative. I'm so grateful that we finally got a chance to connect. Um, I want to thank our brother, Stephen. You know, he got us hooked up, and I, I want to appreciate him, Stephen Joyner. Thank you so much. I want to thank our sponsors, Carrie of Soldier Girl Coffee. If you guys love coffee, definitely check it out. Brother, I'm so grateful for you. Um, I've sent you a friend request on LinkedIn, also on uh, Facebook. So when this comes out this Saturday, um, I'll, I'll tag you on it and hopefully you'll share it. But brother, I want to thank you. First of all, I want to thank you for your friendship. And then I also want to say thank you for your service. Thank you too, sir. Appreciate it. It's been an honor. All right, brother. Well, have a, have a blessed day. Be good. Thank you. Thank you for joining us today. Please hit subscribe and share. Please feel free to leave us a comment.